0: Welcome to The Mission Matters. The Mission Matters is a partnership of mission Nexus and 1615 Missions Coaching, who have a shared passion to mobilize God's people to be a part of His mission. The Mission Matters is hosted by Matthew Ellison of 1615 Missions Coaching and Ted Esler, President of mission Nexus. Scanning the globe for people groups that are unreached, we find ourselves gazing through what's been named the 1040 window. Located in the Western Hemisphere between 10 and 40 degrees north of the equator, encompassing parts of Africa, the Middle East, and Europe, is a population nearly unreached by the Gospel. Bob Blinko wants to change that. President of Frontiers, the international missionary organization sending teams of ordinary Christians for long-term service in the Muslim world. Today we talk with Bob about reaching the Middle East, frontiers, and even his favorite soup. On The Mission Matters, here's Matthew, Ted, and Bob Blinko to discuss whether or not churches should still be sending missionaries to the unreached. Welcome
1: once again to The Mission Matters podcast. I am Matthew Ellison, joined as always by my good friend and co-host Ted Esler. Ted, how are you doing today? Doing well. How are you, man? This is round two. People don't know, but we just recorded a podcast prior to this, so hopefully we have stamina.
2: Yeah, plus I kicked my cat out of the room, so he's not going to try to flop his tail in front of the camera.
1: Yeah, if proud, you uh, watched our last podcast or listened <laughs> to it, Ted's cat showed up in the podcast.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Great. Yeah. Hey, listen, Ted, um, this is a surprise question today. I didn't even tell you about it, but I know you're a bit of an amateur chef and cook. And maybe more than that. You're pretty skilled, and it's something I also love to do. I'd like to know your favorite food to prepare, your favorite to food prepare. to cook. Maybe uh, eat as well. What's your favorite thing to prepare? Mm.
2: Well, I'll tell you, it it took me many attempts to get it to where I feel like I can really make this well. But I have finally been able to make beef brisket on the, it's, it's like a big green egg. It's a Kamado grill. Mm. Um, we do it over about 26 hours. And uh, it's so fun because it it just, it tastes just like it does in a good smokehouse. Mm. and, you know, it took a long time to prepare. That's one of them. I got a couple of them, but we'll stop with that.
1: So that's interesting. One of my favorite things to do is use my smoker as well, and I've been working about 15 years on perfecting the pork shoulder, uh, the Boston butt as it's known um, <laughs> in the cooking world, which is the butt end of the shoulder, by the way, and so it's a very fatty piece of meat. I do a southern-style preparation. I will brine it in molasses and salt usually for about 24 hours. Then I do a rub and then I smoke it with mesquite or hickory for about 16, 18 hours. But the key is to serve it with a mustard-based barbecue sauce, not the ketchup-based barbecue sauce. So, Ted, I'm going to have to make it for you sometime.
2: I'm, I'm in. <laughs> you don't have to convince me to okay. try that out. Well, we have a, a guest today, of course. Uh, Bob Blinko is with us. And, uh, Bob, we're going to put that same question to you and then have you introduce yourself. Is there something you like to cook? Wow.
3: Yeah, thanks, I, uh, I like to cook a, a shrimp soup that I first tasted in Bangkok when my wife and I lived there 40 years ago. And uh, now that you can find the, uh, the curry here in the United States, we like to, we like to cook this, uh, this shrimp soup, tom yam kung, it's called. Kung is the word for shrimp and tom yam is a, a soup. And now you can get the cilantro and put it in it. It really does take you back to uh, the days of Thailand.
2: And it sounds really good, too. Yeah. So, Bob, uh, let's just kind of start things out. Could you tell people that are listening who you are? What do you do and what your role is in this huge community in the Great Commission?
3: I'm Bob Blinko, and my wife is Jan. We have three grown children. We uh, sold our possessions and moved overseas to the Middle East in 1990. Uh, by the Lord's providence, we were the first missionary family to live in Iraq. In the 1990s. And uh, then in the year 2000 I became a Director of Frontiers in the United States, U.S. Senate base, and I'm President of Frontiers at this time. So uh, what a great uh, privilege to be part of the great effort to bring the hope of Jesus Christ to some of the least and last peoples of the world.
2: Amen to that. And, and our listeners should know that uh, Bob is one of our plenary speakers for our upcoming upcoming uh, Nexus virtual conference, the Mission Leaders Conference. And um, I've heard a couple of the other plenaries, Bob, and the bar set pretty high, brother. So we'll see how you do there.
1: <laughs> so Ted, I'm gonna do a plug for you guys here. If, if people aren't registered, how do they register?
2: I just go to missionexus.org and look for Focus 2020 Spotlight. Um, I'll just, I'll tell you, I we have this speaker from the UK, her name is Kate Coleman and um, she addresses a wide swath of issues that we're facing globally not COVID related but social justice related and how that impacts the Great Commission and what I really like about her talk is it's very easy for us to have a provincial view of these issues when we Mm -hmm. live in the US and she brings a I wouldn't even call it a UK perspective she brings a global perspective to it it's just a phenomenal talk and uh so i look forward to hearing it again i'll probably listen to it once or twice more before the conference because i have it here
1: great well i hope people do register i think it's an important event especially since we couldn't gather together this is an alternative yeah so bob there's a conversation that ted and i are hearing a lot today and it's not a new conversation And it is this idea that the support model of missionary sending is really dying a slow death. And that's probably been intensified by COVID because of course the runway to the field is quite long right now for a lot of folks who are in the chute. And what we're hearing about is we need to be seeking alternatives, BAM, uh, indigenous partnerships, native missionaries, whatever you want to call it. And so I wonder, do you think that the support model, this model of local churches identifying, raising up, and supporting sent ones is dying?
3: One cannot put his shoulder to every controversy that we uh, have in the Christian world, but this one seems to me important and uh, worth at least raising my voice on. Uh, does uh, Does this concern come out of the idea that we should feel sorry for missionaries, that uh, their life is too hard just even to raise support to go. Have we missed the great uh, reality and the great joy that uh, they're going to do mission where dying is gain, and that they're going to be more like Christ? They're going to be apostles as as Christ was. Are we trying to find some way to make up for uh, the great glory that it is to people to be senders and to be the missionary community that stands behind someone. This is the first problem that I see with this, is that the Great Commission did not say uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Find somebody else to go and uh, you will fulfill the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus didn't say, uh, as the Father sent me, so I'm going to go find somebody else to go just because the economics demand it. Can you imagine the first century how many difficulties there were with plague or disease and travel and obstacles in order to send missionaries so i'm first of all concerned biblically that we stay true to this this mandate that we we go and we overcome the difficulties that may be put in for us put in front of us at this time uh, i think of david livingstone who said i never made a sacrifice you know people worry that i might have uh, given up something in order to be the missionary in Africa, but uh, is it a sacrifice which brings such blessing to the one who goes so come on, I want to encourage all those that do feel they 're go they 're called to go not to give up on that sense of calling, but to link yourself with a church which wants to send you and an agency which wants to make sure that that happens and uh, and overcome and then to the donors who what are we looking for a good deal uh, is we're looking for a heck of a deal maybe to go find uh, a way to send 20 national workers instead of the, instead of the, uh, the, the missionary who is so expensive. And a couple of problems with that, but first of all, we have to be scriptural and send those that are really called to go and remember that there's no substitute in becoming like Christ to be part of that effort to enjoy the fellowship of his sufferings by, uh, by going where dying is gain.
2: So, Bob, well, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate, maybe literally here today. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, I think one of the, the pushbacks with the sending model as we have it today is it's obviously not a universal model in scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I would say a lot of people would feel that it was born 250, 275 years ago in that it was born out of a colonialistic um, era, and that we are continuing to uh, promote these ideas of colonialism, imperialism, as we send Westerners as missionaries. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, that's been an that's been attack a for 100 years. You know that uh, 100 years ago, the Archbishop of England said that, that we now have a witness on six continents, uh, that we've got witnesses all over the world and we can stop sending missionaries. Uh, Of course, we we don't go back 100 years or even 250. We want to go back to the Holy Spirit, which sends people in the book of Acts, uh, that sends people in in the manner that the Father sent the Son. So uh, let us first of all recapture the sense of what it means to be the church, to be the sending church, and uh, not suppose that this model is either pragmatic or recent in development. As the Father has sent me, so send I, you and uh, go into all the world and preach the gospel. these are the texts which still call the church to be the sending church. Yes, I understand the obstacles of the times and the difficulties with which we now live and serve. Uh, but I tell you what it seems to me at least my own experience with frontiers that the donors are sacrificing in this time to make sure that they are continuing to support their missionaries it is It is a blessing
1: to them, and we don't want to to deny that to them so bob one of the things that surfaces a lot and you've already hit on it a little bit is that this model is financially unsustainable you mentioned pragmatism so they're looking at this just through natural lenses i get that but you know they talk about the most bang for the buck which you already mentioned uh do you believe that the support model is in fact sustainable
3: yes let me refer to one of the most uh well-known uh, articulate articles uh, on this point of view of supporting those who are nationals out there. It's from uh, Revolution and World Mission by uh, K.P. Johannen, and he made the classic case for this, saying, tens of thousands of Native missionaries are being raised up by the Lord in the two-thirds world right now. They are Asians. Many of them already live in the nation, Where they must be reached or in nearby cultures the primary message i have for every christian pastor and mission leader is that we are witnessing a new day in missions Uh, we can help make it possible here's he offers the heck of a deal we can make it possible for millions of asians to move out with the liberating gospel of jesus christ so that message is out there i'm trying to deal first of all scripturally with the, the reason to send but now as to the model look it looks to Americans as though this opportunity to uh, to uh, focus your, your giving on locals out there will bring about the uh, the planting of churches among peoples that are in the Hindu and the Buddhist and the Muslim cultures of India, Pakistan, Chad. These different ideas. Caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware on this. The New Testament outcome that matters most is mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, when Paul thanks Priscilla and Aquila. Read Priscilla and Aquila for for me. They risk their necks for me. All of the churches of the Gentiles, greet them. Churches of the Gentiles, ecclesiaean ton ethnon. This refers to the planting of churches who are not, Of people that are not being accreted onto the existing churches of their time, but are starting churches comprised of Gentiles and governed by Gentiles. And this reality is something that I find almost never happens when you simply give money and expect that Locals out there are going to do the work of planting churches among people that are not their kind churches of muslim background believers churches of hindus This great reality of the bible is hardly one that even the jews were willing to Bring about with paul count the number of people that paul had on his missionary teams over the years There are 28 to 32 only four of them were jewish people priscilla and aquila planted churches among the Gentiles. And there's two others mentioned in Colossians 4. The others were all Gentiles themselves who were recruited by Paul to plant churches among their own people. So the great thing that has to happen, whether by uh, employing and paying nationals through the method that we're reviewing right now, or by expensive North Americans, is to plant Churches among the Gentiles, and that great outcome, rate outcome is worth a little more auditing than we've seen in the past, or until now, with the, uh, with the methods that are out there. Here's an example. My friend, Dr. Rajendra, who was head of the India Mission Association, get this, 50,000 members of the India Mission Association, all of them local Indian people who were on the payroll of people from North America, 50,000 Indians already on the payroll. But Dr. Rajendra said, I cannot find 50 among those 50,000 who are willing to even talk to Muslims about the faith. So there are, there's an accumulation of bias out there in the India world, in the world of Chad and Sudan, that is hard for us to imagine. So let's not simply think that, oh, brown people, they can do the work among people that are also like them. It's a much more Uh, it it needs a lot more investigation to find out the truth of what Dr. Rajendra is finding, for example. Yes, the India people will find many, many uh, Indians to work among, but they're usually the Dalits like they themselves are, or the historical Christian people. So so, uh, let me illustrate. You get an American delegation which goes over to India and investigates for themselves come back with the delightful fact that they have found an Indian evangelist who's already trained 20 more and all they need is money american money in order to make their evangelism work and so the church shifts its funding to these 20 and, and get some wonderful reports. We save pictures of them standing up and preaching the gospel. But uh, we have to ask them the further question, are they reaching their own kind of people with more and more good work, which may be the outcome you want? Or are they planting churches among the Gentiles? That is the Muslims, the Hindus, the great populations of, of Asia, which are yet to be uh, populated with Christian churches.
1: So you know, Ted and I try to be provocateurs on this show. Um, sometimes we take sides. Sometimes we just press and poke. But I, I agree with you. This whole idea that this model is not sustainable is ridiculous. We fund and support the things we love. If we love sending, if we love God's glory, then we'll find a way to fund it. I, I just don't buy this at all. So I'm with you, brother.
3: Well, uh, love finds a way. You know, uh, and, and love. Is, is is grown a great deal when you send your own missionaries. I, I don't want to uh, end up saying both and, or anything works. I wanna say we have to find the way that we will bring about the great biblical end of missions, which is churches among the Gentiles being founded. And that may happen very well by funding local nationals, but you better do an audit. The audit is very important to see where, what's happening with your money and not be simply uh, 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 happy do you see pictures of people standing up and being baptized and things like this it may be more of the same extension of the gospel among their own people with american money if that's your outcome that's fine but don't suppose that the great non-christian populations have been reached in that way
2: yeah i would i would just uh, say i myself have taken kind of dog and pony show trips to see work done in other places And I'm pretty savvy cross-culturally. I've seen a lot of missionary work. And I've walked away really wondering what's going on. And uh, sometimes I think that when uh, funders, particularly, who don't have that kind of depth of cross-cultural experience that somebody like me does because I've worked in missions for so long, I worry that they are showing something that's actually not realistic on the ground.
3: So to your listeners who are open to another point of view, I think there's some that are just convinced that we are going to get better bang for our buck a heck of a deal if we uh fund the nationals and that's all they want but for those that are still open let me illustrate with a story like like yours ted i landed in northern iraq uh the only american christian family there but there were local believers they they were from the historical background of the church of the east and for the last 200 years Missionaries or donors have been showing up in Iraq and the Middle East and finding to their delight little groups of historical Christian people and say, well, all we have to do is to fund them. That's the missing point. And they will evangelize the Muslims. And it didn't happen. A 200 year experiment in trying to convince these uh, these local Christians, the accumulation of prejudice that they feel and bias that they have makes it much more difficult for them than for us pastor, I, I crossed into the Christian neighborhood over there. The the, the priest, he, he, he poured me a whiskey, first thing. And he said, live in our neighborhood, Bob, with the Christians. We'll have a Christian woman wash your clothes for you, watch your kids, and we'll show the Muslims that we stick together. Now, this was uh, an opportunity. Somebody may want to do that. I broke his heart. I went to live with the Muslim population. We started something brand new, Churches Among Gentiles, you get the point. But there's, there's even a special word for the Christian population in the Middle East, in the, in the Kurdish world, called fellah, F-E-L-L-A-H. It refers to a different race, a different kind, a different language, a different history, a different dress, a different way of who, who, who can get married into your group. And so when you ask a person from a Muslim background to join with the paid, paid local nationals from the Christian church to join them, It really is asking them more than Christ asked when the Samaritans came to faith, you know, in John chapter four.
2: Yeah, I I encountered that in India when I had um, some Muslim background believers tell me that when they first heard about Christianity, it was through Hindu Christians. And I'm like, what are Hindu Christians? And they were referring to Indians of Hindu background who'd become believers but like anybody, they contextualize their Christianity to Hinduism. Nothing wrong with that, they're, they're doing what we do and we contextualize our faith to the American context. But to the outsider, there wasn't the aroma of Christ, it was the aroma of Hinduism in their Christianity that they referred to. So sometimes it does take somebody with a very starkly different uh, background. Um, to to work in these areas.
3: Let me illustrate that in a way that may shock your Listeners, suppose a a Muslim couple couple comes to your church on a Sunday morning, and they have been born again, and they present themselves for baptism, and they join your church, and there's much rejoicing. And the next week, the same thing happens again. Another Muslim couple joins your church, really joins. And the, the next weekend, the same. It's a phenomenon. It's never happened before, let's say, in our story. And three years go by, and then there's a vote at the church meeting whether or not to keep the pews and all these Muslim background Christians who have joined say, there's nothing biblical about sitting in church and we want a great open space. And now what have, you, what have you got? You've got a terrible crisis on your hands. And most people that were once in the white church, they feel betrayed. So this is a case for why, out, why in the Asian world and the African world, we have to start churches among the Gentiles, churches that Muslim background believers can form, comprise, and govern and find their own biblical way to work rather than accreting them to existing churches. And that willingness to start to trust Muslim background people to start their own churches, I don't see it happening much in the United States. I don't see it happening much over there. So follow the money, see where it leads. If we're going to be biblical about seeing movements happen among Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists, we're going to have to be biblical about allowing these new believers to start their own churches.
1: So, Bob, something we hear in favor of BAM and marketplace missionaries, if you will, is that missionaries who raise support lack credibility. They really don't have a legitimate reason to be in-country serving. Maybe you can address that, because I hear that quite a bit.
3: Business as mission is is a great uh, thing to do. And if Matthew 25 were being written today, I think Jesus Christ would say of those needy people, I was ashamed of myself because they didn't have work and you provided, you created wealth for me, you created a job. And so we have to be about providing real needs for people. That's BAM. But it's very rare when a, a Westerner can start the kind of business that will also fund him or her. Really, this is just uh, cloudy, cloudy thinking. In my experience... There's two reasons why businesses mission practitioners need to raise their support. First of all, if you can raise your support, then you can take that element, that big component out of your business and let the business run by itself without having to first of all, or second of all, pay you. But secondly, people that support you, they stand behind you in prayer. What did the Lord say? Where your treasure is there, will your heart be also. So let's follow the money of people that want to support you and they will pray for you they'll be part of the success they'll be part of overcoming the obstacles so business as mission yes but the idea that there's enough money out there in the in Chad or Af- or the rest of the world to uh, to raise your support as BAM it's just not practical
2: Bob, i got to tell you a quick story I was at a uh, it was actually a board meeting for an organization and they were getting a um, they, they were hearing about business's mission and why they should move the agency in that direction, and the speaker was a BAM proponent, and he talked about his two wonderful vice presidents that was making the business they were making the business successful, and um, he flashed the slide up on the screen there, and his two vice presidents, one had been about 15 years with the organization that I served with, pioneers, the other had been. About 15 years with the organization, user with Frontiers. Yeah. <laughs> so those two organizations had spent many years investing in these two missionaries to make them effective incarnational workers, and then they joined this business's mission effort. And the argument was, missionary agencies are really not needed because we can do it through business. I just thought that is really uh, kind of a, a bait and switch. There, um, I, I you know personally let's throw it all at the wall and see what sticks the truth yeah. is i have not seen many full-time business as mission entrepreneurs also successfully plant churches unless they do it in very uh, non-resistant people groups like the han chinese um, so from my perspective there's also a bit of an effectiveness question uh, when it comes to using that model exclusively so
3: Let's start businesses. If I were to reside in India, where I've only visited three times and watched the businesses vision, we've got to overcome the the uh, entitlement mentality of, of just sending over twenty foot crates or forty foot crates full of of food or toothbrushes and handing them out and and then calling that your mission. Let's start businesses. Let's create wealth for people. Let's employ people and and make the that difference in their lives. But uh, this at this added uh, insult against donating people, uh, raising your support in the United States in order for Canada to make that done. I just don't think that's really there, not gonna happen.
1: Yeah. I get nervous when I hear the silver bullet mentality, the exclusivism that we, we have found the way, this is the way it's gonna happen. And so I really appreciate your response, Bob, that, you know, yes, let's start businesses. Yes, let's send and support missionaries. And so we appreciate that. Hey, listen, one final thought here before I turn it over for Ted for our special segment at the end of every show, from what I hear, and the data is not out there yet, but missionary sending is on the decline, maybe brought on by COVID perhaps again, the end of the year numbers will probably tell the tale. Yeah. But there is this conversation now it's too expensive. It's not sustainable. You've addressed all these things and you've really gone back to the scripture. So I hope that gripped people's hearts and minds there. But what does the path forward look like? How do we raise up a new missionary movement of people who will leave home and go to the ends of the earth to proclaim Christ? What's it going to take?
3: Well, let's make that a question worth some reflection rather than uh, me to stumble around here and pretend like I know. My final answer is maybe, you know. So, what is it going to take remains to be seen. We are in the midst of a A jungle, uh, a a fetid jungle, and we don't know the way out. But I can tell you this, our numbers of people applying, just close up and personal, have not dwindled. People are still planning to get out there when it becomes more possible. Now, our our numbers sending have crashed, you know, they cratered almost nothing in four months. Uh, Could we do anything about that? I don't think so. Is that the future? I also don't think so. So uh, I continue to work with aspiring team leaders who want my help our help to be prepared to go there's still a call upon the people of god to send and jesus christ said i have other sheep which are not of this fold they too must hear my voice so let's be about the the careful work of soliciting people to go through traditional mission agencies and through agencies which may not exist yet and means which don't yet exist i'm all for uh you know, looking around at mission, at opportunities which may may develop, haven't we all been rather surprised at the way that uh, this this crisis, corona crisis, has allowed us to innovate, even in little ways, which are going to change our our lives, our presentations? I look for more innovation into
1: the future. It's great to hear. So I'm going to give a quote from David Penman here, and then I'm going to ask Ted the closing question. So David Penman was an archbishop in New Zealand, Bob, and I don't know if you've heard this quote, and I've I've shared it on this podcast before. It's so powerful. He said, no local church can afford to go without the nourishment and encouragement that will come to it by sending and supporting its best people. You see, churches can't afford not to send their own to the ends of the earth. We're already spiritually anemic. If we stop sending our own and we just hire proxy soldiers and i believe in the mass mobilization of god's people but if we outsource this entirely what's going to happen to our churches it's going to be disastrous (sighs) so bob thank you very insightful today um i know ted and i really appreciate this and so ted the part of the show where you share something you like
2: all right well this podcast episode something i like is and it goes with our kind of our theme in our talk here with Bob is the International Journal of Frontier Mission. Um, you know, Missio Nexus publishes EMQ, which is kind of what I call a practitioner's journal. It's meant for the frontline missionary. It's meant to be practical and pragmatic. IJFM really focuses a lot on issues that intersect with the frontier. Um, you're not gonna like everything you're reading here. I never do. <laughs> but there are always a couple of ideas in here that I find very compelling and very interesting, and it's not expensive to join. If you want to get introduced, they are doing a conference coming up as well, an online conference. The title is The Past and Future of Evangelical Mission. <clears throat> I am one of the speakers, but I noticed I didn't make the speaker listing on their magazine, so I'm not one of the important speakers, which is great. Um, but. Pick up a copy or uh, go on the website for the International Journal of Frontier Missiology. I find it a good read whenever it comes. So that's something I like.
1: Me too. Great. I'll uh, put my name in there too. Something we all like. So Bob, again, thank you. This has been a really rich conversation. New life comes to us on its way to someone else. Love finds a way.
3: The love of God compels us. Let's not give up, brothers and sisters, on the sending of new
0: missionaries overseas. That brings to a close this episode of The Mission Matters with Matthew Ellison from 1615 Missions Coaching and Ted Esler, President of Nexus. We heard from Bob Blinko, President of Frontiers. Learn more about Bob and Frontiers Missions online at FrontiersUSA.org. Before you go, would you visit our sponsors' websites? It's 1615.org and MissioNexus.org. There you'll find a wealth of interesting and challenging information about the state of the Great Commission. That's 1615.org and Missionexus.org. The Mission Matters is presented through a partnership of 1615 Missions Coaching and Missionexus.